And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, our focus is going to be about psychology, how to improve your mental health, things you can do to quickly increase your perception how to read other people, how to handle certain situations, develop mental toughness. We're going to explore why certain people think the way they do. We have an amazing psychologist and best-selling author. Before we begin, I just want to bring to your attention that lately I've been following this morning routine by Tim Ferriss, and I highly recommend his podcast too. He's great. And he's got this routine where he says you wake up in the morning and you write down things that you're grateful for, and then you also meditate. And I've been doing that. There's just those two little things alone have had a huge impact on my focus. Like just, you know, night and day shift as far as my operating daily routine goes. Also, I've been listening to this, uh, taking this course by Larkin Rose, one of our previous guests, called Candles in the Dark. And this course is about, teaches you how to engage people that are locked into the belief of statism or the belief of authority. And one key lesson I've really taken away from this is that he, he says you really don't want to argue with people. You don't want to you don't want to combat them because they're really entrenched in their ideals. What you want to do is you want to bring them to a place where they can come to the truth onto themselves. He says it's really up to every person to decide where they want to go. And if you can show them contradictions within their belief patterns, let them get to where they are by themselves, you know, they likely will go on a path that's uh, more fitting. He says at their heart, most people are, are good people, but a lot of us have become indoctrinated with state-sponsored propaganda or religious propaganda. I, I can tell you myself, I am a uh, recovering victim of state-sponsored and religious propaganda. I was totally in the system, and I'm totally out of the system now. I don't believe in any of it. But this gentleman really teaches you to engage it. So I used to always try to be combative and, you know, and try to just show facts and he says you can show all the facts you want you can show all the things you want but people have to come to their conclusion on their own and I think that's a really great takeaway because I'm sure at one point in time you could have had a great book you could have had a great teacher but ultimately the path that you chose was one that you made on your own so I just want to bring that to your attention and again feature guests talk about psychology I love reading books about psychology. I think the mind is absolutely fascinating. I don't believe that the mind and the spirit are, are too separate. I think they, they work in tandem together. And thankfully, our featured guest goes in there. So let us begin tonight's program. Welcoming to the program is Dr. David Levy. He's an award-winning professor of psychology at Pepperdine University. He is also author of a new book called Life is a Four-Letter Word, Laughing and Learning through 40 life lessons. You can learn more about David by going to his website, 
at davidlevypsych.com. Dr. Levy, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thank you. I have to say the title of your book is very catching because the first four-letter word I think of is probably not a letter that you could watch during morning cartoons. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are, there are lots of four-letter words out there. Some are good and some are not so good. Well, what is the top? Well, let it, me guess. Was it love? Was that the four-letter word? No, it was usually, no. The, usually the word I say when I, when I stub my toe or if I find out that uh, I get one of those spam calls. Oh, well, I can think of two of those. But we're not going to say them, are we? No, we're just, yeah, everyone can kind of envision. So you got 40 life lessons. I do. I have more, but only 40 made the cut. <laughs> so what would you say would be some of your top four life lessons? All right. Well, the first one is the lead story in the book, Life is a Four-Letter Word. So I am I was six years old, and I was terrified of getting a shot. I mean, it, no kid likes getting shots, but it, it, seriously, man, I was just absolutely just terrified. So I walk in, and the nurse comes in carrying, uh, you know, way back then, they weren't little tiny shots. They were like glass tubes with a bayonet attached to one end. And she starts to come at me with this, you know, weapon of war. So I start to fend her off with a bunch of questions. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Is it a tetanus shot? Well, no, wait. Is it a booster? No, 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 wait. How many CCs? And she goes, David, you can ask me all the questions you want, but you're going to get the shot. And I thought, oh, my God, there's no way out of this thing. So I, you know, squished my eyes together, and she gave me the shot, and it hurt. But after about an hour, it didn't hurt anymore. So the life lesson that I took from that, and I still enjoy telling the story, is like if something's going to happen that you don't like and it's inevitable, just get it over with. Just get it over with. Get your shot. If you've got to make a phone call you don't want to make, if you've got to send an email, if you've got to talk to your friend or your partner, just have the conversation. Just do it because the waiting is sometimes worse than the event itself. So that was the first story in the book, and that's the – First life lesson that I can recall. All right. But what if you have resistance and you say, you know what? No, I don't want to go through this. What if you decide and refuse to not go through the experience because it is a direct infringement upon your well-being and your livelihood? Then you don't do it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's like the key word is if something is inescapable and inevitable, then I would say it's like pulling a Band-Aid off. You could do it slowly, but why bother? You could get into water slowly, cold water, but, you know, why agonize for a half an hour? But if you can get out of something that you don't need that's bad for you, please remain intact and, you know, be wise. It isn't cowardly to get out of a tent that's full of a tiger, you know what I mean? Or like, you know, cobras. Get out of the tent. Don't be, a, don't be silly. That's what I try to do. And I like that you talk throughout your book about laughter how it's so yeah because i feel so many people take themselves way too seriously well put and everyone out there is offended by something or and i i don't know i'm not into that i like to laugh good all for you the time i'm constantly making fun of myself that my wife can't yeah. even keep up so how <laughs> do you, oh yeah so you in other words you stay you say you stay a step ahead of oh, your I wife say, I stand, I, self-deprecation oh absolutely and my wife's like well, she's because I, I always take it away from her she always tries to get one and once in a while she'll get one over me and she'll they'll be really good i'm like wow that, actually no that, that's not funny that, that's pretty that's pretty yeah cool. yeah but 
Well, as I tell, I'm following your point. As I tell my uh, therapy patients and my students, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself that seriously. You know, don't take yourself so seriously. You know, we're we're all dust in the wind in some in some way. And if you take yourself too seriously, first of all, pe- people aren't going to want to be around you, and second, I you're going to be miserable. You know. No one's That's ever going to miss the person who's perpetually offended. But what does laughing do to the learning process? And you know, some people say, "Well, you know, you got to take life seriously. You got to do." But what does laughter in general do for your psychological well-being? Well, you know, that those are two really good points and two really good questions. You don't really have to laugh, and if you want to, you can take every moment seriously. But you know why? Like the cost of not laughing. The cost of taking everything seriously to me is not worth it. It's not worth the cost. So to me, it's a choice, but why not take the path that's more enjoyable and more pleasurable? In terms of what laughter does, it frees us up. You know, it gives us, in a nutshell, more perspective on what's going on around us. Because frankly, and I know that you're a fringe dweller and you, you've met a Absolutely. fellow companion on this thing, the whole thing's absurd, dude. I mean, the whole deal is absurd. You know what I mean? So if we can accept that, we can can then laugh at it more. I'm not saying laugh at tragedy. No, of course not. But the things that get us down day after day really aren't worth it. Um, I've just started getting into stoicism. And I think Uh it was Tim Ferriss who brought this book up called Letters of Seneca. And I'm really trying to embrace it a little bit more because... Based on the industry that I'm in, especially with the show, I tend to get pretty, I don't know, provoked by certain things because I'm very passionate sure. about, um, you know, justice. I believe in justice, especially. Yeah, for good for you. Those are values to you. But how do you go about in your book to kind of engage the world and take on information without having that information yeah. or without having those perspectives dominate you, bet. you? Well, here's how. To me, it's all about finding meaning. And when I say all, I mean almost entirely in life, almost everything, to make life manageable and interesting, it's finding meaning in stuff that we do. And it doesn't have to be grand aspirational. It could be small things, doing a good deed, laughing at a joke. But if we find meaning in it, it all becomes tolerable. So I know a lot of people say you've got to search for happiness and search for – but I've never been good at that, frankly, because happiness is elusive, but meaning isn't. It's you can always find something to learn from every experience. And then here's what I find. If it's meaningful, well, guess what? You tend to be happier and you tend to laugh more. So my takeaway advice would be, in general, try to find meaning in any things that happen to you, good or bad. And that's the through line of the book. It's all about learning lessons. It's all about finding meaning in everything from getting a shot to having to put down a pet to falling in love with the wrong person to getting a traffic ticket, all of them have lessons embedded in them if we just will notice, if we'll just go out and look for them. They're there. I've spent a lot of time trying to define meaning in life and certain things, and mm-hmm. we've had the pleasure on our show, I believe, of interviewing at least 20 people that have had an after-death experience. People have been clinically dead, mm-hmm. have come back, and one of our famous near-death experiencers says that there is no meaning to life. That you come here, you experience, and you go home, and it doesn't okay. matter what you do. Yeah. So 
I'm it's not. Hard. I'm not that nihilistic. Okay. <laughs> and I here's but here's where I agree with sure. your guest. I'm not saying that there's inherent meaning in anything. I don't know. I'm just a 65 year old Jewish psychologist. What do I know? But I am saying whether or not there's inherent meaning doesn't matter. What matters is if we can find meaning in it. And there's a big difference between there being meaning and getting a shot. Maybe there's none. I don't know. But I found meaning in the story because I get to tell it to you 60 years later. So I think we can always find meaning in something, whether or not it's there. And life, again, becomes more tolerable if there's purpose in it, if there's meaning in it. What is the necessary purpose of meaning? Is it just you decide that you want to react and interpret and embrace a yeah. certain event or experience? What is the purpose of That's having a really, that? It's a good question. I don't have a, a, uh, a clever answer, but I'll give you an honest one. It's First of all, it's personal. It's personally each person. And second, it involves having a sense of purpose to you. If you say to yourself, this, this gives me purpose, I'm learning something, then you're finding meaning in it. But there's no objective standard. Somebody else might have gotten a different lesson from getting that shot, and another person might have said, no, there's no meaning at all. Just get the shot and shut up. But for me, it was profound. Not because the nurse or the shot itself gave me something. I interpreted it to give me meaning. And we have a choice to do that every day. I don't know if you ever read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, but I read that in school, and it just, it, it just knocked me out. It's been a guiding force ever since, that even in horrible circumstances, we can always try to find meaning in it. And he said, and I think this guy knows, everything can be taken from you in life, everything except one thing, how you choose to view things. That can never be taken from you. That's the only real freedom we've got. Now, that sounds terribly dark and nihilistic, but it's not. It's liberating. You can always choose to view something differently, and I choose to view things through a lens of meaning and learning, and it makes me feel better. Maybe I'm delusional. I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. No, I don't think you're delusional. <laughs> I, I always think that if anyone challenges themselves to think differently than the collective society, I, I think it's yeah. terrific. I feel like it benefits everyone else, and I really do not like that I feel human beings are being kind of gathered together like cattle basically yes. to think the same and it's just I don't That's think right. it does anything for us but some of your other life well, I think I think it sets us back frankly you know. we stop evolving we stop growing I, you know I think that I you know a discovery that I made about doing therapy and being in therapy years ago too was that you know insight in therapy is really important but it's not the whole ball of wax it's all about change it's all about growth and to me, change and growth requires courage. It's the courage to change, not just the knowledge. People who use drugs know they should stop. They know, but they keep doing it, and mostly because it's a bad habit and they're scared of changing. They're afraid of what will happen if they stop using. So to me, it's all about having courage to change. And to go to, to, go to your point, it requires courage, I think, to disagree with other people people so yeah, that's why sometimes they when we see people that are honored in society and at least today i find a lot of these people that are being put on pedestals are the ones that are yeah. pretty, pretty much agreeing with everyone else i think that the ones that are really the game changers yeah the they're, they're not the game changers you know, they stand against that's everyone right else. that's right but you know what one of your life lessons is that it says doing the right thing can be painful yeah. What I'm wondering is if you 
develop an association in your life of saying, well, in order for me to do something, it's got to be this painful, long, prolonged experience. Does that, yeah. in one way, shape, or form, unintentionally program your subconscious to yeah. only associate change with something so painful so you are less inclined to do it? I mean, can some change be made quite easily? Or, I mean, yeah. do you risk the, the chance of associating only the most substantial change in your life with something that has to deal with pain and suffering? That's a really good point. I think for many people, it involves pain. I don't think it has to, though. But I think change almost always requires or almost involves some degree of anxiety because it involves the unknown. I think as a human species, the unknown is in our DNA. It's scary. It's exciting. It's stimulating. It's, it makes us curious. But there's always a bit of fear in change because we're afraid that it might be worse because we don't know for sure. Um, but not necessarily painful. Anxiety, that's what I've seen in my work as a therapist. It's scary for people to change. If you're in a horrible relationship and you're being abused and you know it's bad, people stay stuck for a lot of reasons. One of the biggest ones is, what if I feel worse if I leave it? What if I feel worse? And that's terrifying for many people. I agree. And unfortunately, I'm going to also agree with your previous points. Most of the changes that I've had in my life have been as a result of, of pain. And one of my teachers and mentors told me that too. And, and I yeah. don't want to believe it. But at the same time, I mean, it's, I guess that's what happens. But It I get, does. I think it's part of our experience. Yeah, it's what I remind everyone. Dr. Levy's book is Life is a Four-Letter Word, Laughing and Learning Through 40 Life Lessons, which has come out December 3rd, 2019. Dr. Levy, I see that you've also written two books about a subject matter that I love, I'm very passionate about which is critical thinking, something that I feel is being diminished by the yeah. second, especially with this recent generation. Well, I'm not going to name, but I, I'm packing them oh, a lot. Oh, please, go ahead. Feel oh, free yeah. to name them. <laughs> the, uh, so okay, anyway, uh, it's up to you. Why is critical thinking becoming diminished in our society? Can you please also at the same time give our audience a brief, long story short of what is critical thinking? Well, critical thinking to me is not just one thing. It's a collection of things, but it involves trying to use two important tools that set us apart from lower life forms. That is using some degree of logic or rationality and requiring some kind of proof or some kind of evidence. If we guide our lives that way, we're not going to make every perfect decision, but to not do it is almost a guarantee of making rotten decisions. You know, I know that when I was an artist, meaning an actor and a director, in, in the art world, you need to use your intuition. But you know what? In terms of science, even political um, settings, in terms of trying to change our culture, we've got to rely on facts. We need to be fast-based. Fact -based. And people, this is going to sound terrible, a lot of people don't like facts. Why? If the facts threaten them. They threaten their belief system. And people become so invested in needing to be right, their egos get in the way, and they reject facts because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Well, to me, discomfort does not mean that you're bad or that you're ill. Discomfort is part of growing. But a lot of people don't want to be uncomfortable. So they become ego-invested in being right. They get stuck in being right. And people are also, not all people, um, you know, like you and I, we're exceptions. <laughs> But a lot of people who are listening, and I'll bet, your audience, yeah. we view, if somebody is different than us, 
we view it as an opportunity to learn something. But if somebody is emotionally insecure, they view it as a threat. If somebody is different, they need to be changed. We need to change them because somebody has a different point of view that makes us feel, you know, scared or bad about us. And it's amazing. You watch people, you know, maybe not these days, but certainly 10, 15 years ago, someone would say, well, I don't, I don't want to eat meat. And you watch their reactions. What do you mean? What do you mean you don't want to eat meat? And they go, I just, I don't want to eat meat. And people start to get rattled. And I'm thinking like, what do you care? What do you care if someone doesn't want to eat meat? And it's not just about meat, it's anything, because they feel threatened by somebody being different. Critical thinking, to me, also means being able to accept differences and to evaluate them on their merits, not just at how they make you feel. I mean, your feelings are nice, but they're not the best barometer to doing the right thing. I mean, how many times have you fallen in love with the wrong person? You know, don't trust your gut when it comes to falling in love. Use some data. If you're attracted to someone and it turns out they're, you know, an IV drug user and they're abusive, been time in jail, use the data, guys. You know, look at the data. <laughs> One of your books, The Tools for Critical Thinking, Metaphors for Psychology. Yeah. You go through 30 different critical thinking principles. Yeah. Of all the critical thinking principles within your book, what two do you think are most crucial for today, two of those critical thinking processes that are completely okay. being lost, that people could actually improve their life dramatically if they were to learn and to re-engage that. Okay, great. That's good. I've never been asked that before. Okay. One of them is the one we've been talking about. People rely on their feelings way more than they should. Again, if we're talking about art or love, fine, if you want to. But for all other decisions, people are overly reliant. Look at a political rally. That's all about emotion, and it bothers me. It scares me when I watch emotion ruling the day. The other one that I think probably is just as important is people tend to think in a binary, all-or-none way. They don't see shades of gray. You're either with me or you're against me. And to me, almost nothing in life is that black or white. It's a matter of degree, and whether I'm working with an individual or a couple or in whatever context – if people can start to see nuance, first of all, they see things more realistically because things are nuanced out there. It's not black or white, but also they become open to new ideas. If they're living their life in boxes, A or B, they've sealed themselves off from experience. So let's try to reduce black or white thinking, and let's rely on evidence and logic over feelings when it comes to big decisions. That's two out of the 30. I'm sure there are more, but those are the ones that jump out at me. Now, there's some really great lessons you have. I see one of them is called the self-fulfilling prophecy, when expectations create reality. One of the yeah. ones I was thinking about is this idea that there is some kind of collective group wisdom, that if a couple of people mm -hmm. believe something to be true, it is. And I, every time I see a group of people decide that they're that they're into something i always walk the opposite way i just don't, yeah i, I know I, what I you mean i don't want to completely i want nothing to do with it because i think that yeah. as you surrender your um, yourself to the group, independence your yeah. autonomy yeah but when it comes to i think okay. go ahead i'm sorry no, no please go ahead when it comes to you know allowing more information to come into your spectrum and to choose between what you think the right outcome will be or what what your perception will be if you have 
group think if you have a number of people in society that will shame you for oh, even entertaining man. the idea, which I see a lot of. How do you overcome that? How do you how are you able to overcome that with all that pressure? I mean, we see a lot, even going back years ago, centuries ago, where if you question the church, you were that's you're right. Heretic. You burn, you get burned. Yeah. You burn at the stake. And if you question anything in, in America, you question anything, you're, you're being bullied. I don't understand why yeah. that happens. So how do you go about and go beyond that? If you people feel threatened by differentness, it's the same same point as before. That if the group feels a certain way, now look at. The group isn't necessarily wrong, so I think we need to evaluate the group's opinion on its merits, but not by the fact that everybody believes it. I'm like you in that regard. That doesn't impress me. It doesn't impress me. It's interesting if a million people believe that X is really Y. I'm interested, but that shouldn't persuade me. Evaluate things on their merits. But if there is emotion involved, I'm like you. Get me out of here. And sometimes I have the courage to stand up, and sometimes I don't. If my job hinges on it or my income, I'm not going to fight every battle, Ryan. I'll, I'll fight the battles that are most important to me, but I'm not, I'm not about to take on the world and be alone in that one. I'm not that much of a hero. <laughs> also, well, Dr. Lee, I'm curious about what is your core CPU I want to say that. Say that. Let me give you the right explanation. What is your core okay. software program that runs in your mind and your spirit about who you are? And I'll give you yeah. an explanation of what it might be Please. for some people. Some people say, okay, sure. well, I'm a human being. I'm, I've got this job. I'm defined by my job. I'm defined by my family. And I adhere to uh, you know, a supreme being known as God. Some people say, well, I am part of an infinite consciousness. I am actually part of the infinite consciousness known as source or as God and I'm having an existence and experience. So I'm curious, what is your you know, core operating system? What, what, well, do, you, what do you go about through life and think? You're throwing, you're throwing good ones at me, Thank and I, I can't give you a glib answer. Um, it's probably you know, a bit of everything that you've mentioned so far, but I would say at my core, it's really more existential. That, for, for me, experience and existence is largely in the here and now, and it's self-defined. I'm not saying we can create realities around us, although who knows, maybe we can, but we interpret them as we see fit, and I feel like I'm a free agent to interpret things in a way that I believe is useful or helpful to me and others. So again, we come back to this, this point about finding meaning. For me, without meaning, I'm not sure I could get through the day. And it doesn't have to be grand meaning. Like, again, doing a, doing a good deed for someone is meaningful to me. It's a meaningful act. But for those people I know who are se severely depressed, I can guarantee you one thing above all else. They have no meaning in their day. None. And if you were to compare the beliefs and the thoughts that you have about yourself, we're talking about people in general. If a person has a certain belief about themselves, Mm -hmm. And they compare that belief about themselves to what others believe about them. If the belief of the individual is stronger than that of the external people, does that person ultimately have the upper hand? Do they ultimately have control of their lives? Are they more in control of where they're going? Whereas if the person has a less of a belief in themselves and adheres to the beliefs or what other people are saying about them, 
are they kind of more inclined to loser individualism and to kind of you know not have the strong footing to c- control their lives? Yeah. Well, again, these you're you're tossing up very deep and uh, profound questions. Um, I don't necessarily have the answer, but I'll I'll tell you what works for me is that I try to avoid the extremes of both ends of that continuum. That for me, if somebody has so much belief in themselves, that for me is just narcissism. You know, if somebody has so much belief in who they are, that means to me they're excluding outside influence. But if somebody's at the other end of the continuum, they are just at the mercy of other people and other beings. That's not good either. So I think each person needs to find their their version of a balance point. That doesn't mean 50-50. You, just, you might need just 10% of listening to other people. But I don't think you want to, shut to, to squeeze out outside influences and think that I, 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 avoid, I try to avoid hubris, that I have all the answers because I believe something is true. Now, if we're open-minded, we feel ambivalent. But ambivalence, to me, isn't the enemy. Ambivalence is a sign of intellectual strength that you can actually tolerate not knowing. Because, heck, who knows? You know, I have a story in my book about, you know, what do women want? And that question has perplexed no me. Well, you... I could give you the answer that I heard Please. once anyway. You know, I ran around. I, you know, I heard, read this in graduate school that Freud didn't know. And so I asked every woman who I met for like six months, what do women want? What do women want? And I heard everything. Ryan, I heard... <laughs> you know, to be loved, to be cherished, to be taken care of, to equal pay. Well, I, I was talking to one woman who was like a burnt-out hippie who was just plastered on Jack Daniels, and she looks at me in the eyes, and she goes, oh, I can tell you what they want. I go, what is it? She goes, it's just a four-letter word. And I go, oh, my, okay, what is it? And I'm thinking it's either love or it's the crass word for you-know-what. And she goes, M-O-R-E. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, more. I go, more what? She goes, more whatever. I'm thinking, oh, maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's what they want. Well, I ran into this woman a week later, and I go, I was really impressed by your response to the question. She had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> she had no memory of telling me it's MRE. So my point in telling you the story is that question is destined to remain unknowable. And that's fine. There are many things in life we're just not going to know, and we have to not bang our head against a wall too much. I, just I, accept there's a lot that we can't figure out, and that's not a horrible thing either. I, Einstein once said he didn't consider himself to be particularly intelligent, although, of course, he was. He said, I'm just really curious. And that really struck me. I think that's awesome, to approach life with a, with a sense of curiosity. That means you want to learn things. I'm very curious about mental health hacks. I always love trying oh, to learn about ways to improve learning. And one thing I love doing is, I think I read this on this, actually it's on this website called Bright Side of Life. It's on YouTube. It's a great channel. And okay. said if you, you can tell if someone's, if you want to tell if someone's look at you, looking at you, yawn. And if the other person yawns back, that's a way that they're actually you can tell they've been looking at you. So I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. So I'm taking these notes. Interesting and experiment. You know, yeah. And I love reading about body language. And one of the um, individuals I guess I read about says that every time you're looking at someone, make sure you look where their feet are that tells you whether or not they're engaged. So from your perspective, what are some of the mental health hacks that you would maybe recommend in order for you to, to 
learn a concept faster, to break a bad habit quicker, yeah. to shatter um, your negative belief about yourself quicker. I mean, what are okay, some of the things you recommend that? That's yeah. that's three exquisite questions in a row. Are you going to go for four after oh, this one? Oh, sure, no, we'll go for All right, so let me, let, me, <laughs> let me try to tackle this one. Now, this is not going to be as you know clear and concrete as look at their feet or, or do they yawn back at you. But the best single thing I believe people can do to improve their functioning on Earth is to increase their sense of empathy. That's the most important thing to me, everything. It's everything. If kids learn empathy they are not apt to go wrong in life. If adults show empathy, they're not going to kill people. I mean, unless they're being attacked, maybe. But in general, what we suffer from is a lack of empathy. We were talking earlier about groups versus groups. They don't have any empathy for the other person. It's all about their own needs. So I think with greater empathy, if you can express empathy, which just means can you get it from somebody else's point of view, I think we'd all be way better off. That's awesome. And in all of your years of examining how the psychology of human beings, do you find that human beings are exceptional or in one way no different than animals? Because we have animals that are pigs and I think they're very intelligent. And that's Mm -hmm. actually one of the biggest reasons why I refuse to to eat meat is because I I don't believe in um, killing another life. Just so you can eat, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Eat some and, lettuce instead. Right? Eat some, eat some, <laughs> you know, I'm still eating lettuce, and I'm, I still have two chins, so I know. Yeah, well. I eat a lot of lettuce. But do you find that human beings are exceptional in any way, shape, or form? Or are we just different yeah. types of animals? Well, I don't want to traumatize you, but remember back in, in high school math, you learned about a Venn diagram. Remember those two circles, yep. and they overlap some, and they don't overlap in other ways. I think the answer to your question is a Venn diagram. By that, I mean in some ways we are exceptional, truly. I mean, no other species can send someone to the moon. But in some ways, we are like other animals. And in some ways, some animal species are better than us. I mean, I would say, maybe this is a stretch, but I think dogs are superior beings in some ways to us. I agree. Superior in some ways. They're awesome. But they can't drive a car. So I'm just saying, you know, it's a matter of... Pick your sphere. We're better in some ways and not in others. I mean, look, we have created a remarkable society, but we're also killing ourselves. That's not very smart. <laughs> it's crazy. I don't know what's wrong with this. Yeah. As far as I, my, yeah, I know dogs can't drive a car. I have two dogs. They can't drive a car, but they have a way of communicating with me where oh, if they want to go somewhere that I, let you I, know. I, I'll drive yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And basically, yeah. you know, went to the store last week and I usually get them a little bag of treats. Well, I came back with two boxes of treats. When I was like, "Did you really, you know, spend over a hundred dollars on treats?" I'm like, "Yes." And she, she looked at me. She looked at them. She's like, "They're using the the, the Jedi mind tricks on you." So I'm like, "Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. they are." And they really are. It's not your imagination. I do find. I mean, when I look at, if you look at history, the incredible bond between humans and dogs that goes back centuries. We have. There's no other species on Earth that's like the human-dog relationship. They've been our companions, and we've been theirs forever. And you watch a kid with a dog. I know they like cats, they like birds, but not like a puppy. You watch a one-year-old, and they, just, they light up. There's something about a connection. You'd think like we'd, we'd respond more to chimpanzees because they have 
more D- they have um, more DNA in common than a dog does. Nothing like a dog. So I'm glad you have two of them, and I'm sure, I'm sure they know that you they love them. I'm sure they do. Dr. Levy, of all the advice that you've offered to your clients and patients and of all the speeches that you've done over the years, what are maybe the top two or top three life lessons that you really want people to learn? I mean, you talked about you know, your 40 lessons, life is a, is a better word. Life is a four-letter word, but are there three other principles that you want people to always take away with them to you know, hopefully empower yeah. themselves? Yes, that's, that's great. I would say in no particular order, one of them is that life is always in a state of flux. Don't get too stuck. Don't get too rigid. Be open to experience. That would be number one. Number two, try to seek meaning. Search for meaning in all of your experiences. And number three, try to laugh more. Try to have a good time. It's all going to go by much too quickly. You might as well enjoy the ride. Dr. David A. Levy, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And Dr. Levy's new book is Life is a Four-Letter Word. And Dr. Levy is a therapist, writer, researcher, incredible background. Learn more about Dr. Levy by going to his website at davidlevypsych.com. Dr. Levy, thank you so much. Ryan, it was great. Pleasure to, pleasure to getting to know you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth. Special thanks to our great guest, Dr. Levy, and special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Caza, and Miss Constance Dellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening.